Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. This is the word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your scripture real to us, and that you would make yourself real to us. We ask that your book would live in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And we ask that you would reign as Lord in our lives. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask it. Amen. In about AD 140, a man named Marcion began teaching strange things in Rome in the church. He taught that Christianity was an entirely new religion which was in complete opposition to Judaism. He taught that uh, it was a it was a um, that Jesus Christ rather was a, a new God who was in opposition to the brutal God of the Old Testament. And therefore the Old Testament scriptures were not to be used and they were not to be consulted by the Christian church. He asserted that the Apostle Paul was the only tr the human being who truly understood Jesus, and therefore the only books that belonged in the New Testament, in the Bible, were the letters of Paul and the Gospel of Luke. And then he took a, a pair of scissors to the Gospel of Luke, and he cut out everything that hearkened back to the Old Testament. And Marcion denied that Christ was really human. Uh, he denied that he was virgin born. And he actually denied that Jesus died on the cross because he thought Jesus was uh, really a spiritual being who only appeared to be human. And so therefore he only appeared to be crucified. He was really a, like a ghost. And the church of Rome excommunicated him. And Marcion, who was a very wealthy man, decided he was going to use his money to start a rival church 
and anoint himself as bishop of that rival church. And he was able to found a rival church because of his wealth. And soon he attracted a large number of followers all over the Mediterranean world. And the Marcionite church persisted for two whole centuries and led many astray. It was a very poisonous and very difficult heresy to deal with. And the reason that it did as well as it did in the Roman world of his day was because Marcionite Christianity matched certain ideas that were popular in secular Roman culture. And it matched those ideas very well. It fit the preconceived notions about what was true, about what was good, about what was right, whereas biblical Christianity directly challenged those notions. You you may perhaps remember that Paul, when he was preaching in Athens on Mars Hill, was listened to respectfully until he started talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And the word for resurrection in Greek is anastasis, where we get the, the Russian get, get the Russian name Anastasia. And, and they initially thought Anastasis was the name of a goddess. So Jesus the God and Anastasia the goddess. And then they figured out Paul was actually talking about a human body getting up out of the grave and walking around. And that not only did that happen to Jesus, but that it was going to happen at the end of time to everybody. And they mocked him. Because in their understanding, the body was bad. And death was shuffling off the bad body. And why in the world would anybody want that thing back after they had finally gotten rid of it? And so they mocked him. Well, those are the, that's how ideas are, are, in a, are powerful in a, in a culture. Worldly ideas fall in and out of fashion. But the world always cherishes ideas that are contrary to the scriptures, and the world always wants to grind the Bible to fit its preconceived ideas and its notions. And biblical Christianity must respond in each generation to the issues that are raised by the culture in that generation. The church must articulate the truth precisely and do it in precisely the area that the world is attacking. And the reason that they must is because Christians are going to be easily deceived unless they do. But in doing so, those who are defending the truth are assured of two things. Number one, they will be attacked and they will be hated by the worldlings. And number two, they will also be attacked and be hated from within the church by people who profess Christ but are worldly minded. In other words, they accept the world's definitions of the truth as true. And they don't realize or they don't like that there's a contradiction between what the Scripture says and what the world is teaching us. But here's the difference. The world will attack the man defending the Bible, but it'll also often attack the Bible as well. But those in the church who buy into the world's demonic wisdom will not dare to openly attack the Bible. That would show their true colors for all to see. No, no. 
Instead, they will attack the man who brings the clear word of the Bible to light, and they will do it by attacking his character. They will attack his motives. They will attack his tone. They will attack his manner of presentation. They will attack what they call his interpretation of things, and they will suggest that he only believes what he's teaching from the Scriptures. He only believes what the Scriptures say because there's something wrong with him, because he's a bad person. One of the most stellar examples of this, if you've ever heard of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, it was founded by a guy named J. Gresham Machen. Um, he was a professor at Princeton, and he was kicked out of the mainline Presbyterian Church because the mission societies in the mainline Presbyterian Church had become captivated by theological liberals, and instead of going to foreign countries to teach people about Jesus, they were going to foreign countries to teach people about good hygiene and crop rotation and, uh, and civil morals and how to read. So they never told them about Jesus and their, their need for a savior because they thought that they were there to, to do good to people's bodies, not to do good to their souls. And there were some in the Presbyterian Church that didn't like that, and Machen was one of them. As I said, he was a professor at Princeton Seminary. And so he started a parallel mission agency outside of the, the, the church's jurisdiction for Bible-believing Christians to fund Bible-believing missionaries. And the church clamped down on that, and it shut it down, and it kicked everybody out who was, who was associated with it. And, and Machen ended up losing his job at Princeton and came to Philadelphia and founded Westminster Seminary. This was in the 1930s. And in the process of doing that, also founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But when you go back and you read the stories, they, they attacked Machen. They couldn't attack his exegesis of the scriptures. So they just attacked him. And it was people in the church who attacked him. Well, if he didn't say the things he said the way he said them, That'd be all right. Okay, so I'll say I'm different, he said. Well, no, you, you know, if you didn't, you know, it's just that your tone is all wrong. It's just that you're a divisive person. You, you've got a bad personality. You're just a bad person, Mr. Machen. He wasn't. He wasn't perfect, but he wasn't a bad person. He was just articulating the truth. He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. Now, the liberalism we're talking about here is not like the, the liberalism of the Democratic Party. The liberalism we're talking about here is theological liberalism that fundamentally denies the scriptures and thinks that human beings and their reasonings are above the scriptures. In other words, the scriptures don't judge us. We judge the scriptures and we decide what's true. That's theological liberalism. And he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism that showed clearly that biblical Christianity and theological liberalism were two separate religions. Oh, that made a lot of people mad. You're just a bad person. It's like, no, here's the facts. No, you're a bad person. Okay. When they do that, they'll often come up with highly inventive distortions of the scriptures on their own to justify themselves. And when people within the church rise up and attack the preaching of the scriptures, the world will beat a path to their door. And the media will come and they will stick a microphone in their face 
and the reporters from CNN will come on and they'll say, look at this fine Christian person. She doesn't believe what the Bible clearly says, not like that evil person over there. More Christians should be like her instead of being evil bigots. If only the evil bigots understood the Bible and understood Christianity like, like this woman does and like we in the media do, the world would be a better place. And in so doing, people become the best tools that the devil has. Now, there are things in the scripture that are debatable. And we should debate them. The church, I mean. There are things in the scripture that are difficult. Not all of Scripture is equally clear, and the Bible tells us that about itself. And the Bible also tells us that uh, it says that one of the reasons why God puts those things in there is to trip up what the willfully ignorant and unstable um, people want to do. And, and people who like to twist the Scriptures, what they're going to do. And so he says that in in 2 Peter, and we'll see that if you turn, well, you don't have to turn with me, it's up on the screen, but I got to find it here. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 and verses 15 through 17, this is what Peter says. Wow. It's like the light of the gospel just shined on me or something here. All right, he says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And the Bible clearly predicts that the defection of professing Christians from the truth is, is going to happen and it's going to result in willful error in 2 Timothy and chapter 4. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Well, when we get to this section of Ephesians, we are immediately confronted with the Marcionism of our day. The culture doesn't want to hear the things that are in this next chapter and a half of Scripture. The culture hates them. And large parts of the church also doesn't want to hear these things either, and it will happily ignore them, or it will twist them. Now, it's hard when we've been taught erroneously that things are a certain way, and all of our friends and family also believe that things are a certain way, and maybe we were even taught in church that things are a certain way, and then we come face to face with the Scriptures and find out after careful investigation that we were wrong the whole time. 
that we had misunderstood or we had been misinformed. That's unpleasant. It's happened to me over and over again. It's unpleasant. It's disorienting. Sometimes it's costly and inconvenient. Maybe you've taught a Sunday school class where you taught something that ended up being wrong and you didn't know it at the time, but now you know it and you're like, oh crud, I taught all those people I was teaching. I taught them the wrong thing. What have I done? Well, that's why being a teacher is something that you've got to be very careful about. And God says you're under a stricter judgment if you're going to take that upon yourself. That's, that's an unpleasant place to be. And believe me, brothers and sisters, I've been there more than once. I've learned, I've learned how to say I was wrong. And here's, here's the best I can understand things now. But loved ones, that's what repentance is. And the Christian life is meant to be one long, ongoing exercise in repentance until we are one day made perfect. But loved ones, make no mistake. The call of the gospel is that God's people must repent. And if they don't, they will be judged. God is patient and he will not allow sin to be overlooked forever. Uh, but there's a big difference in God's mind between sin, sins of ignorance and willful sins. In other words, once you know things, you are responsible for them. So because I'm not just speaking to you here in this room, because my voice is going out over the internet and who knows who's going to see this and hear this and who knows how many years in the future it might come back, uh, I'm going to try and minimize opportunities for offense because of ignorance and I'm also going to try and make sure I'm very clear so that any bad actors can be deprived of an easy target. So I'm going to go through these things very slowly and methodically. And I'm going to try and give you some very important background information to help you appropriate them and absorb them. But I'm not going to tell you this is going to be easy. I've actually been stressing about this passage of Scripture since January of 2020, 2021 whenever it was, whenever we start, 2021. I, it's, it's seriously, I've been stressing about this because I want to do it justice, but I know that it's going to cross a lot of you and you're not going to like it. It's going to step on your toes. Therefore, we aren't going to dive directly into Ephesians 5, 22 and 233 right away. Instead, we're going to start off in a different place and we're going to start off actually with the being of the triune God. Now, I've mentioned this before, but please be patient with me. Uh, it'll be new information for some. God exists and always has existed as one God in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These persons are equal in power and in majesty. These persons are all the same age, so to speak. In other words, the Father isn't older than the Son. You may say, well, He's the begotten Son. Doesn't that imply that the Father comes first? No, He's the eternally begotten Son. He's all, God is, the Father has always been begetting the Son. That's just in the nature of the Trinity. They're made of the same God stuff, whatever God is made of, Spirit. They're all the same. And the technical theological term for that is they are con- substantial. Now, all of this is in the scripture, but it's in kit form, and it would take more time than we have today to assemble the kit together. So let's just look briefly at a small portion of one of the creeds uh, that is what we call the universal creeds of the church or the ecumenical creeds of the church. In other words, it's the one that everybody believes, and it's the Athanasian Creed. Listen to what St. Athanasius, 
says about the, the being of God. And remember the word Catholic, small c, doesn't mean Roman Catholic, it means universal. Whoever wants to be saved should above all cling to the Catholic faith. Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, co-equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father. Uncreated is the Son. Uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite. The Son is infinite. The Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father. Eternal is the Son. Eternal is the Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. As there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, and the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says this a lot more briefly and succinctly in uh, section three of chapter two. You can look at that for your homework. So each of the three persons in the Godhead is absolutely equal in every way. Now, when we descend to the human level in the fallen world, we discover that human beings do not really like to think of themselves as equals at all. And in many of the ways that count in human culture, particularly fallen human culture, they aren't equal at all. There are some people who are faster or stronger than the others. Nobody will pay a hundred bucks for a ticket to come and watch me try and dunk a basketball, right? You pay for Michael Jordan, you pay for LeBron, right? Nobody wants to see me do that. Why? Because I'm no good at it. We're not equal, okay? Uh, some people are smarter than others. Some people are more motivated or they're harder working than others. Some people are born with more advantages than others. Some people are rich. Some people are poor. Throughout human history, in all times and all places, people have generally believed that the intelligent were better people than the unintelligent. That the strong were better people than the weak, and that the rich were better people than the poor. Each race has believed that it is superior to the races that live around it. For instance, you go to China, the Han Chinese clearly believe they are the superior race. Carol S. Quigley, a, a historian from Georgetown University, has this huge book 
called the history of the world in our time. It's a, what they call a macro history of the entire history of the human race. And he breaks it up by regions of the world. He was Bill Clinton's history professor in the 60s. And, and he writes in one of his chapters, the Japanese believed that Asians are superior to every other race and that the Japanese are superior to all the other Asians. So in man's fallen world, inequality leads to pride. And that leads to exploitation. And that leads to harm. That's why we craft our legal systems in the West the way we do. It's why communism came into being. It was done to try and do away with inequality. Karl Marx said, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's interesting how many college students think Jesus said that. It was Karl Marx. Now, it didn't work, of course. Instead, it produced a system of horrors that was arguably worse than the system it replaced in every single case. And then Jesus comes along, and something changes. Jesus brings his people and only his people, into a new kind of life. And he does it not just as individuals, but as a group. Now, one of the things that this means is we have to be very careful in applying the teachings of the Bible concerning things that are proper for the people of God because they have the Holy Spirit and the potential for change. We need to not try and lay those on the world because the world doesn't have the Spirit of God and is not capable of change. The point is that God is changing us, and so we here are different, and the world looks and goes, <laughs> Son of a gun. Black people and white people have been trying to get along for thousands of years and they failed. But there's those Christians and they're doing it. Huh, son of a gun. The rich and the, have been exploiting the poor. But here these Christians are and the rich are kind to the poor. They're different. And we're supposed to go, yeah. Yeah, we are. We're different. And Jesus does this not just to individuals, but to us as a group. And that new kind of life comes in and it changes how we are related both to God and to each other. And that change is radical. And it was really radical in Paul's day. Uh, we in the West have had 2,000 years of Christian softening of our culture, so these things don't sound as radical to us today, but if you go back and study what life was like for people in the first century, you begin to see how radical statements like Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 are. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill historian and writer, said that is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history. That nobody ever thought that way before. Nobody ever thought that way. A Jewish man used to wake up in the morning and face the sun, and his first prayer was, God, thank you that you did not make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. Because those are the bad people, and those people are worthy of contempt. Thank you, God, that I am so wonderful. Aristotle said there are some men that are only fit to be slaves because of their character. 
because of their skill level, because of what's inside of them. That was, that was standard operating. That's what everybody believed. The rich were rich because they were better. The powerful were powerful because they were better. That was what everybody believed. And God comes along and he says, there is at the bottom of human experience in Christ an equality. But Christ doesn't obliterate distinctions like Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free. He doesn't obliterate them. Instead, he creates a deeper unity that is more foundational and is more important than our differences. There is now a bedrock unity among the people of God. We are one, and we are one as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. That's what Jesus teaches us in his high priestly prayer in John 17. We are one as the Father and the Son are one. But then God does something interesting. The Son is equal to the Father, right? They're absolutely equal. But what does the Son do? The Son submits to the Father. So for instance, in John chapter 12, Jesus says something very interesting in John 12, verses 49 and 50, and you can look it up for yourself. I'm of two minds about the whole TV thing. I know it's wonderful, but it also kind of could make you lazy and keep you from digging around in your own Bible. So I don't know what to do. But John 12, verses 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, says Jesus, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So in other words, Jesus says, the Father's telling me what to do. Oh, wait, Jesus, aren't you equal to the Father? Yeah. And the Father's telling me what to do. And the Father and the Son, they're totally equal, and yet the Father sends the Son. And the Son only does and says what the Father tells him to do. The Son empties himself and takes on the form of a slave. We like to translate it servant, but it's not servant, it's slave, doulos. And is obedient to the Father even unto death on the cross. And yet the Father and the Son are completely equal. The son actually says, true greatness in the kingdom comes from becoming a servant. Among the Gentiles, the big shots exercise authority over people and pretend that they're doing it for everyone's good, even though everyone knows that they aren't. But that's not how it is in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, the greatest are those who serve humbly and well. He says that in Luke 22. You can look it up for yourself. And then the son leads by example, doesn't he? He serves his disciples as a slave, and not just as a slave, but as the lowest of the household slaves. He takes on a job that belonged to the guy that you gave all the crummy jobs to. He washes the feet of his disciples. And then he dies for them like a criminal. 
And then we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who submits to the Father and submits to the Son, even though he is totally equal with both. In John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then John chapter 16 and verses 12 through 15, he says something even more interesting. He says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So right here, in the middle of the life of the triune God, we have something interesting and from the world's point of view, completely baffling. We have absolute equality between the three persons of the Trinity. And we have a hierarchy where the Father tells the Son what to do. And the Father and the Son tell the Spirit what to do. And what the Father tells the Son to do, the Son does joyously. He joyously obeys His Father. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit and the Spirit joyously obeys the Father and the Son. And then God says to His people, you are equal. As the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal. But you shall relate to each other in certain relationships as though you are not equal. You shall learn in your common life together to reflect my character, says God, and my glory and my way of being. And this will not destroy your fundamental equality. We find these relationships in the family. We find these relationships in the civil sphere. And we find these relationships in the church. So in other words, you're all equal. But some have been given by God the duty to tell others what to do in certain circumstances. And those who are told what to do are not less than the people who are telling them, but are equal, but are bound to God to do what they're told. Now, when God sets up those relationships, He delegates authority. He delegates authority to certain people. He lays an obligation of obedience upon other people. So let's take one that's pretty easy to understand. Parents and children. That's probably the easiest example. God gives the father and the mother authority over the child. Now that has been unquestioned in every human culture for all of human history until the day before yesterday in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. But that authority is there. It's a fact. The parents 
have authority over the children, and God has delegated that authority to the parents. It is a God-given authority, and God expects the children to obey. That's the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long on the land. And as a corollary, God also expects the parents to see to it that the child obeys. In other words, if the child is a habitually disobedient child, the responsibility and the fault, according to God, is on the parents. And the child is bound by God to honor the parents, to obey them. Now, obedience looks different when you're 60 and your parents are 80 than it does when you're 10 and your parents are 25. But the principle is still the same. The children are to honor the parents. The corollary is the parents are to behave in ways that are honorable. God has set up a world where under Christ, there are certain people who have the God-given authority to tell you what to do and to tell me what to do. And they have the God-given responsibility to see to it that they are obeyed and that you do what they tell you to do. Now, that notion is widely ridiculed in our day of postmodern thought and radical autonomy. Nobody tells me what to do, people say. Postmodern men and women, nobody tells me what to do. But of course, that's the cry of the devil, isn't it? Nobody tells me what to do, says the devil, not even God Almighty. And so when people say, Nobody tells me what to do, especially God Almighty. Well, you know who their father is. Their father is the devil. Isn't it interesting, though, that the minute that a postmodern person who refuses to submit to any God-ordained authority, the minute those people get power, they become the worst kinds of tyrants. And they demand that you obey them or suffer the consequences just like their God, the devil. In a world such as this, it is incumbent on Christians to relearn God's patterns of authority and to relearn how to wield authority in godly and effective and appropriate ways. We are the ones who are to model for the world how to submit to authority in a godly, effective, and appropriate way. God has laid this at our feet. We've drunk too much of the world's Kool-Aid. And it's evident in the way we behave. And God is calling us in passages like the ones that are coming up to repentance, to a wisdom to understand what it means and what it doesn't mean, but to repentance. To repentance. And the reason he calls us to repentance on this thing, these things is because the world needs us. And it needs us to be fearlessly, uncompromisingly obedient to Christ in order to be an example. In order to show lost people how to live. Because what we'll find, as distasteful as it might be to take the first steps that we're supposed to take, what we find is it smooths out relationships and makes life run as it should. You know, one of the things, I'm grateful to C.S. Lewis for many things, but one of the things I am most grateful to C.S. Lewis for is that when you read his stories, 
you get a picture, for instance, of a king who is a noble person, who's a good man, who wields authority and says, you shall do this and you shall not do that, and who has people who serve the king and aid the king and advise the king, who are delighted that the king is king, and who make it their business to be the best servants of the king that they can possibly be, and they take joy in that position, and they understand that their position is one of dignity, that in service they are doing what they were created to do. Now the world comes along and says, you serve anybody, you're being diminished. They're, they're taking advantage of you. And God says, no. You serve, and you serve well. You're like my son, the suffering servant. Now, we got to have eyes to see and ears to hear on this. It's going to be, it's going to be a tough road. And I, I don't expect that it's going to be easy. There's going to be all kinds of questions. I will not have time to say everything I don't mean by some of the things I say. And we can talk about those things. If you want to ask me, you know, after the service or later in the week, that's fine. I'm open to being talked to. I'm open to being challenged. I'm even open to being corrected. If you can show me where I'm wrong from the scriptures, I'll stand up and I'll eat crow before all of you. That's, that's my job, right? But if I'm right, then you need to receive it. You need to absorb it into yourself. And you need to obey it. Father, these things are in your hands. You are the great high king, and you are the one who expects to be obeyed. And you expect the people that you delegate authority to to exercise it well. And you also expect your people to submit, not just to those you put in authority, but ultimately to Christ. For there's a great mystery here, and Paul alludes to it, that that the church is to obey Christ as Christ loves the church, so the church submits to Christ. And that our relationships with each other are mirrors, they are parables of that glorious relationship between you and your people. Help us, O oh Lord, in these things, for we need help desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.